This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, is expanding its footprint into the cloud and doing it in a slightly unusual way. FEMA is partnering with the Agriculture Department to develop a chargeback model to its program areas. Jim Rod is FEMA's cloud portfolio manager. He tells executive editor Jason Miller about how the cloud will impact FEMA's mission. We started with AWS initially. Um, that was the first one we had ATO'd. Um, about six months later, uh, about March of last year, I guess, we started bringing uh, Azure in. And that's been ATO'd as well. So both of those are fully up and operational. Right now, we're currently working on a new project with one of our partners, um, Pivot, which is the National Flood Insurance Program, are bringing up Google Cloud Platform. They're actually doing it in conjunction with USDA, and but they're bringing it up in a methodology that will allow us to absorb it into the FEMA Enterprise Cloud with no issue. So it's all our standards and everything like that. Let me jump into that because that's a great partnership that because FEMA partners with USDA probably on the flood stuff and Mm -hmm. helping people recover from floods, how's how's that working? You know, I, I don't really know how it initially came together. I mean, interestingly enough, when I first took the position over, I wanted to speak to, you know, some other cloud brokers that were, you know, in the federal government and three that popped up was two under DHS, which is uh, USIS and CBP, so I've talked to them, but neither one of them have a multi-cloud solution with a chargeback methodology, so we wanted to make sure we were speaking to somebody in that realm as well, and USDA was pretty much the big dog on the block. They had a very mature cloud doing chargeback, they're multi-cloud, they're hybridized, so it only made sense to go and talk to them. So I started talking to Casey Cook there at USDA. He would help me with, you know, governance policy. Hey, how'd you handle this? Hey, this just happened. I'm not sure how to handle it. What do you think? And he would give me an idea, you know. And I, I actually think it was extremely beneficial because hearing some of the growing pains that the other agencies went through certainly made it a lot easier for us to bring ourselves along. I think the key here is two things. You have that collaborations happening between FEMA and fill in the blank, in this mm-hmm. case USDA. And I think that's so important because everyone has similar challenges, right? Yeah. Like, like, yes, you do your own thing and USDA has their own mission, but you're all moving to the cloud for that same piece. Yep. And then the second is this multi-cloud world and the chargeback model. So let me start with what's the maybe the big lesson you would impart to others who are moving into this chargeback model, the multi-cloud approach. What's the one thing that maybe USDA told you that you said that? is the golden uh, uh, ticket there. The thing with the chargeback is being able to offset cost. I mean, that's the name of the game. You know, all said and done, you know, our current cloud footprint is probably about 2 to $3 million a year, okay? If we can offset some of that rather than right now, you know, we're carrying all of it. With time, as we ingest more clients in and stuff like that, we should start to see an offset in cost. The important things are... You can't make money on it, the federal which is, government. Which is the worst <laughs> part of this because, as, as you well know, I just have to jump in here because I, I, I cover shared services quite a bit, and there's nothing worse than the, this inability to, to make a dollar to right. help pay for future needs. Anyways, yeah. go ahead. You said, so you've you got to figure, figure out how to break even. Right. So, you know, that's your goal ultimately is to break even. Um, I don't honestly, with us having to support, support our own uh, security infrastructure and everything like that, I don't really ever be, – 
think we're going to get to, you know, even. If we got to 50%, though, that would be outstanding, you know. So we developed a cost model. It's, uh, it's What we wanted is a one-stop shop. A client comes to us, tells us their need, um, or we help them to develop a solution. But we didn't want them to, like, then have to talk to the sustainment folks and get a price, then talk to the licensed folks and get a price. So we tried to make our cost model as inclusive as possible. It covers everything from your basic compute needs, your migration, your ATO, your licensing. I mean, everything. We're actually adding cyber to it right now. Now, when we developed this cost model, it looked great to us, but we wanted to test it out. So we gave it to Gartner, um, and they looked at it, and we did a big briefing for them, and we showed about it worked and everything. And they actually came back and said it was elegant, which we thought was a pretty cool you know, description of it. Um, and it's, it's served us really well. It's, it's giving us, you know, our future internal and external OCIO clients, you know, the opportunity to really be able to plan efficiently by having all of that in one place. Let's delve into that cost model. You, you go to your missionaries and say, if you want to move this application to the cloud, it's going to cost you X. And they explain them how it works. And mm-hmm. what's the reaction been? Has it been, has it been some kind of hesitancy and then they have to learn about it there's a there's a big cultural change here obviously yeah there's obviously a massive culture shift with moving to the cloud you know um and 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 fema is just as uh aware of that need for a culture shift as anybody else is you know our mission being what it is and having to respond to disasters instantaneously we try to sell it on the scalability the flexibility you know um the ability to to convert our uh redundant possibilities, East Coast, West Coast, North, South, um, across this CSP to this CSP. You know, we try to show all that, but they don't really see it. You know, that's the back end. So the important thing for us is, like, when I do my little briefing, one of the things, like, and this would be a briefing to a prospective client who has no knowledge of the cloud, pretty much. Um, We give them a a little briefing on, you know, the status of our cloud to date. Um, And one of the things we like to do is, or me personally, like, I don't make any promises on price because here's the reality. In any government agency, for that first year or two, you're running hybrid. You have to maintain that physical environment, especially for somebody with a mission like ours, where we have to be up no matter what. Um, So, you know, we have to run hybridized for at least a year or two. And during that time, obviously, your your, your costs are going to be substantially higher. So I actually kind of stay away from that. Or I brutally tell them, look, this first year or two, it's actually going to be more expensive. But as soon as we can start turning off your stuff in the physical environment and and shutting that stuff down and killing those contracts, that's when you're going to start to see your cost savings. And those cost savings, what, what are you seeing so far? The difference are we talking about ten percent, fifteen percent? Do you know oh, yet? Oh no, it's more. We are looking at at just our environment up at the headquarters level right now. It's more like the thirty to forty percent. Jim Rod, the cloud portfolio manager at FEMA, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. 
She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.